Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who serve as powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Sandra Grassi Nelopovich, is soaked in passion. But passion is not enough. Sandra and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career, I have interacted with a wide array of people as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I observed that figuring out the right fit is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in the wrong marriage, the wrong career, or the wrong house. The solution is simple. Stop asking the question, who is the best, or what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one, which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more, about my right fit method, continue listening to today's show. And after the show, visit Win Without Competing to read excerpts from my book. 
on to my guest today, Sandra Grassi Nelipovich, award-winning boutique artist. Sandra began her career in the Chicago area as an art teacher, then moved to Orange County with her husband, John, whom she met on the streets of Oak Park, Illinois. Taking the plunge, she became a full-time entrepreneur, mastering her unique approach to batik art. Nella Povich displays her art at juried art shows throughout California, Illinois, and Arizona. She has won numerous awards, and her batiks on silk are displayed in many collections, including schools, libraries, hospitals, and McDonald's corporate headquarters. Sandra has also designed a unique batik fabric for fashion designer Barbara Jax's collection and provided illustrations for music publisher Jolly Robin Press. Her batiks have been featured on covers of publications and included in art books. Welcome to Win Without Competing, Sandra. Hi, Arlene. Thank you for asking me to join you today. My pleasure. You were born in Oak Park, Illinois. Tell us about your parents and your two sisters. Okay. Uh, I'd also like to tell you a little bit about my grandparents because they were a big influence with me. My parents, who were born in Italy in adjoining small towns near Florence, came to America when they were about 11 and 13. My dad, who had been accepted to agriculture school in Italy, couldn't go to school because he had to join his father in America where his father had become ill. And then he had to go to work rather than school. When my parents were in their late teens, they met through my mother's brother. He and my dad played soccer together. And they married in 1937. A few years later, started the family, and so my dad had to work. My dad became a foreman in a paint factory that manufactured paint for the war. And you know, Arlene, I wish they would have been able to go to school beyond a basic education because they were both quite intelligent. My mother was very creative. In fact, she did the beautiful school murals where we she attended grade school and then we at- later attended that same school. So it was nice to see her work up on the walls. She was also good at math, and she sewed beautiful clothes for us, and she was a great cook and a baker. Tell us about the environment in which you grew up. I know that you had, prior to the show, uh, told me that you were in a neighborhood that catered to the mafia. Tell us about that. (laughs) Yes. Our neighborhood was um, a working-class neighborhood. It was populated with a a lot of immigrants. Uh, There were a lot of Italians, there were Poles, and there were Lithuanians. And everybody seemed to live in their own sections of the town. Uh, And that was a good thing because we were enriched by a lot of different nationalities and and good food and the fastas and things that were um, pretty ethnic. But I do remember some colorful stories of mafia activity that people would speak about under their breath. But I never did feel unsafe in the neighborhood because 
the mafia seemed to have a little code of ethics among themselves, and so I don't think they really bothered the the regular, so to speak, person. So you were aware of them, but you weren't influenced by them? No, we were not. I want to step back in terms of what did your parents do to nurture uh, your creativity? Well, my... My parents really loved, especially my father, loved classical music and opera. In fact, almost every Saturday, I don't know if you remember this program, but we used to listen to the Metropolitan Opera Series. It was sponsored by Texaco at the time. And usually we had music playing in the house all the time. And your sisters, uh, were you the, I think you were the oldest, am I correct, Sandy? Yes, I, I am the oldest of three sisters. My sister Beverly is three years younger than I am. And she is married and retired from teaching in the primary grades. And my sister Nadine is nine years younger, and she she was a young widow, and she raised two boys, and now she has a grandson. And she still is an excellent art teacher. She's teaching uh, to this day. They all live in the Chicago area, and we're still very close. Well, what's interesting is that your parents obviously nurtured something in all three of you to want to help others. Can you figure out what that was at all? Well, I think it, since we were such a close family, um, I, I think they felt that, uh, and, and also because they didn't have a chance to go on with their education, uh, that, that they wanted something better for us. And so they they were pretty good about saying go with what your heart says to go with. And, and so that was a good thing because... When parents are encouraging, kids can do a lot. How old were you when you became passionate about art? Well, I, I probably started in grade school. I remember <laughs> I was really excited. I think it was fourth grade when I opened my new box of crayons at the beginning of the year. I loved that smell, and I just couldn't wait to use them, but I didn't want to ruin them. And I also loved doing cartoons. I thought, well, maybe someday I'll be a cartoonist like Walt Disney, but you know, California seems so far away, and it's pretty ironic that I live in Anaheim today. Okay, um, but when you were in school, you were, you took art classes, and you had art teachers both in grade and high school. Right. Okay, why were they the right fit teachers for you? What did they do to motivate you, to encourage you, to nurture you? Well, my grade school teacher was um, a, a good artist in her own right, and she was um, encouraging. She'd enter us in little contests, and, and it was nice when we won little ribbons. And uh, they were usually um, statewide contests, you know. But um, my art teacher was really my role model. I really admired her. I looked up to her. She was very attractive. She wore beautiful clothes, and she was very encouraging all the time. So I wanted to be just like her. And besides, I liked doing art and being around young people, so it was kind of a combination of things that, you know, I, I thought art teaching, ooh, I like her and I like the whole the whole business. Okay, so she was a role model for you She then. was, she was. You told me that after you were graduated from high school, mm-hmm. you decided not to become a secretary, as many of your friends were planning to do. Right. Why was being a secretary the wrong fit 
for you? Well, you know, I was being trained as a secretary at this local savings and loan uh, prior to high school graduation, and they really wanted me to work there. And it was a very nice job, but I thought it wasn't for me because it wasn't very creative. Uh, a lot of young women at that time were just biding their time till they could get more married, but I really wanted a degree. And so I decided that the secretarial thing was not for me. I wanted to go on and get a degree in art. All right. And teaching. So what I think is interesting is that at, I guess, how old were you then, Sandy? I was about 17, you All know, right. when, I, when I was um, being primed for this job because I was working while I was going to high school. So at that age, you realized what the components were of a blueprint of the right fit career. Right. Because quite often, people do not know. They go from job to job, and it's not even uncommon that after college, college students don't know, and they try this, they try that. I think that it was wise of you to try the secretarial route, and I gather it confirmed for you that it was the wrong fit, and that even though your friends were pursuing that route, you didn't feel that you needed to do what they were doing. Definitely. You, in essence, didn't feel that you were you had to match them or you had to compete with them to be the so-called best secretary. You had a mind of your own. Exactly. Plus, I had parents who were supportive. Well, that's very important. Mm-hmm. And I think that as we continue talking, we'll see that you're somebody who competes with yourself and you raise the standard higher and higher. So as we go along, we'll talk more about that. Okay. After you were graduated from the University of Illinois, where you majored in art education, Mm -hmm. you started teaching art. Right. What or why did you decide to teach art rather than doing it yourself? Well, first of all, that was my major. I I was going to follow through with that. But then after I did student teaching, I really knew that I liked that that particular field. I liked interacting with kids, and I, I liked helping them find their potential. Okay. So, again, it matched your concept of the right fit career for you. Right. You taught art for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Why was it the right fit career that you held on to for so long? Well, first of all, because I found it still fun and exciting. I, in the beginning, I taught K through 8 for quite a few years, and then I kind of graduated to junior high. And even though that age was more challenging, I liked that age group because most of them liked art and they were fun to be around. And a few of my students even went into art teaching, and one went into architecture. In fact, I still get together with some students socially when I'm in Chicago, you know, exhibiting at the art shows. But okay. another, pardon me, but another reason was that I liked Oak Park, the village where I taught, because yeah. it was a place that was very interested in the arts. And in a little tidbit of information, it's the home of Frank Lloyd Wright and Ernest Hemingway. My goodness, it really <laughs> could be 
a, uh, a, a, a instead of calling you a Frank or an Ernest, I guess we could call you Ernestine then. Oh, <laughs> You're an Ernestine, okay. Sure, sure. Right. So now, um, when you switched to mm-hmm. junior high, did you have any problems disciplining uh, the kids at all? Well, in, no, not really. I um, I think they liked art, and sometimes they would even put the problem kids in my class because they weren't doing well in other things, and but they liked art. And for the most part, I, I didn't. You didn't? Okay. Uh, no, I didn't. Do you think it has to do with what you did to motivate them? That's what I'm trying to get at. Well, probably so. I, I believe that Every child is not a Picasso, and so you can't just look at that and, and grade them accordingly. I used to look at the whole child and, and see how much they were motivated, how much they tried, you know, the whole picture, not just, oh, I'm a great artist, because that didn't necessarily get them a good grade. And I think they realized that. They knew where I stood, and I, I was pretty fair. Okay, all right. Um, going further... You met your husband, John, while you were walking from the bus stop to work. Right. (laughs) Tell us about that and why he was the right fit. Okay. The uh, the last week of school, in the 60s sometime, I started passing this nicely dressed businessman who was walking to the L, which is the elevated train that goes to downtown Chicago. And the last day of school, he stopped me and he asked if I taught at that school because he'd look around and I seemed to disappear around the corner. So we started chatting, and then he asked me out, and my friends used to kiddingly ask about him because they'd call him the Washington Boulevard Man or Le Boulevardier, which was the name of the street we met on. So anyway, we dated off and on because John, um, you know, because John was interested in going to Australia or Tahiti, and I thought I was going to move to Italy for a while there. So... Uh, we were kind of on different wavelengths for a while, but then things got serious and he proposed and we married in 1973. How did you feel when he first asked you out? And did you know on the first date that you wanted to marry him? Uh no. <laughs> I, uh, I, when I met him, I liked him. I thought he was, uh, you know, a, a handsome fellow and uh, very nice. But I was kind of interested in someone else. And, in fact, when I came back from a trip that I took, I was engaged to this other person. So it, it started off on a rocky start. But uh, after that, things kind of got ironed out, and John was the one. And then you you married, and mm-hmm. I think, what was it, about three years later, you moved to California. Why did you move to California? Well, John had a job offer in Southern California with Hughes Aircraft. So I left my teaching job and my, you know, my friends and family, and we moved to Anaheim, and I had no job, no job for me. But it was a new adventure. You know, we were in our 30s, and, and I thought, well, this will be fun. But I was still a little bit out of my comfort zone. But nevertheless, you did it. I did it. Yeah. So that tells me that you're willing to take risks. Right. Which sets the stage for our next topic, which is being an entrepreneur is a bumpy road. Yet, when you moved to California, you decided to become a full-time boutique artist. 
Right. What motivated you to do this and to give up teaching? Well, you know, even though I was a little apprehensive about getting into something new, I I still wanted to start doing this artwork full-time, so I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to start. We're in a new place, and John was very encouraging, and he said, go for it. So I did. Uh, Sandy, tell us, how did you originally become interested in batik art? Well, while I was teaching art, I took some graduate work at the Art Institute of Chicago, and batik was part of a class. It wasn't even a whole class on batik, and my first ones were pretty awful. But I knew I liked the process, so I taught it to the children at school, and um, and I dabbled in it, but I didn't have time to do it because it's very labor-intensive and it takes a lot of time. So that's originally how I, I learned to like batik. And... How did you build up your business? After all, you really didn't know very many people, I'm sure, because you had just moved from Chicago to California. And how did you figure out what to do? How did you create a business model in essence? Well, you know, since I was in a new state, I didn't know anyone in the arts here. I, I really didn't know how to proceed starting the business of art. So I joined some art groups, and I found out about doing shows and you know some of them were pretty bad but little by little people started telling me about galleries or juried shows and the business started taking shape and I was learning you know to keep new books and expenses etc and John helped me pretty much with that and uh, just little by little. You also told me you did some networking what kind of networking did you do? Well networking with friends you mean? Well, I mean, didn't you also try to meet people in different organizations? Oh, yeah. well, I I do I do volunteer work. Is right. that what you, yeah right? I, but I, but also too, how did you figure out, for example, that you should start exhibiting at art shows? How did oh, you figure that out? Well, I met I met different artists and uh, through these groups that I belong to and um they they kind of encouraged me and would say well this is a good show you should try out for or this isn't or or look this up or write to them and so i i started doing that it was kind of hit or miss because as i said i was starting from scratch with no experience in that field and in fact um you know a lot of people couldn't tell me much of anything you know so um that's that's about what i did and and people started, you know, giving me some information, and it was a lot of trial and error. But artists are pretty good that way, especially if they've been in the business for a while. They'll they'll help each other. Oh well, that's know. that's good. Yeah. And so if you went to an art show, and uh, did you have a way of determining whether it was successful for you? I mean, obviously the sales would be, but sometimes you need to go many times. I know that I've talked to artists at a variety of different art shows. And frequently, they can spend a couple of days and sell nothing. So how do I mean that can't feel terrific. So how do you deal with something like that happening? Because yeah, I that's, expect it might have happened to you over the years. That's disheartening. Um, you know, luckily, thank goodness, I in the beginning I didn't have much of that. I don't know if my prices were too low or what, but I was selling, and and um, I and even if the show wasn't that good, I would give it a chance. Because sometimes you can't give a show just one time. You know, it might be just a quirk. So usually I give a show two or three times. And, All right. Um, well, it sounds like you have patience. Yes, I do. <laughs> Good. 
I own two of your beautiful batik pieces. For many years, I've seen you display your work at the Affair in the Garden in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Why do you display there? Well, the Affair in the Gardens is, is one of the art fairs that I do. It's a, a very nice juried show in a beautiful garden setting with a lo- plenty of space and good quality art. And, you know, I've been doing this show twice a year since 1979, and it was one of the first shows I started doing, as a matter of fact. Well, and also, too, if that's the case, you must have been one of the early exhibitors there. Uh, yes, I think it was going on before I started, but pretty close to the <laughs> to yeah, the beginning. No, I know because I mean I've been living in Los Angeles a little more than twenty years, and I know that you know the I guess the um, the show itself is like thirty something years old. So that yes. that's amazing. So that means for this amount of time. You have been accepted every single time, Sandy, that you... Yes, I I think there were two times when I didn't do it. One time because I, I just couldn't do it, and another time I think I was on a waiting list or something. But uh, for the most part, I've been in it for, for years, which is nice. Yeah, no, because they have very high standards. And yeah. I know there have been some artists that I've really liked, and all of a sudden they're gone. And on occasion, I've given them a call, and they told me they they couldn't get back in again, that the Hmm. judges had said no. Well, they have different judges sometimes. Yeah, I know. But apparently, I guess that's part of the issue. But it's a a fascinating phenomenon because I know it's a prized place to exhibit. Well, that's that's a a real um, sad thing about doing this business. I know every business is competitive, but with the arts, you never know. If you're going to be in a show, I mean, usually you you think you're going to be in it, but it depends on the judges and a lot of variables, and and sometimes it's really kind of hard on the ego because you think you're going to be in something and you're not, in, in like you said about these people that you know. Right, but the only thing you can do is to compete with yourself and raise exactly. your own standards. Right. I mean, you can't control the judges they select or how the judges behave. So I'm sure over the years, I would expect your boutiques have really gotten better and better and better and better. Am I correct? Well, I think so. In fact, people are, you know, come up to me and say, boy, you have really improved over the years. They've gotten so intricate. They've, you know, they're, they're some of the best boutiques we've seen. And it's nice to hear comments like that. You know, oh, it's fabulous. Like, sure. Tell us how you felt when you saw on May 18th Michael Jackson, his children, and a bodyguard passing by your booth? Well, I was as I was standing in front of my booth, these three children came walking toward me in these fanciful masks, and I remarked to them how wonderful they looked. And a voice behind them said to me, God bless you. And I looked past them, and it was Michael Jackson and his bodyguard. So I looked at him, and I said, God bless you, too. These were his three children, and then they were rushing to their SUV, which was parked very near me, with a paparazzo trying to take their pictures and Michael trying to shield them with his umbrella. It was um, it was sad, you know, that, that he had to try to protect them so much. But um, Did the children answer you when you told them, commented on their beautiful mask? No, they just 
kind of smiled, I think, is what they did. Uh, I, di- I didn't want to infringe on them, you know, and, and be in their face because I'm sure they get a lot of that. Well, I think it's lovely that you commented on their mass. I mean, because I'm sure you made them feel good. Well, you know, I, I think that's why he said that, too. Maybe, you know, I think children, they probably feel funny that they have to wear those in the first that's place. That's my point. That's exactly right. So I think it was very kind of you to say that. And I think, obviously, he was very appreciative of your comment. Yes. Tell us, uh, Sandy, um, going further here, um, your work is, Fanciful. Right. Tell us about how you create your designs and what inspires you. I know that when I look at your artwork, I feel good. Well, thank you. That's what I try to evoke. Um, you know, I when I was in a, an art major in school, I did very realistic things. And it's kind of evolved into this naive kind of primitive feeling that I like to, to show, like a childlike feeling almost in my work. But I, I try to get this happy or a humorous feeling in it because, you know, we, we just need a little of that in, in life. I, I think having some piece that really makes a heavy statement on the wall isn't at least what I would like to hang on, on my walls. But, um, for example, I have a piece on my homepage um, of my website. I created this piece called Riverview. And it, Riverview used to be an amusement park in Chicago, and people are on the rides, they're playing the games, it's in their eating, et cetera, you know, in the picture. But I also do simple scenes like children chasing butterflies or a couple doing the samba or animals piled in a group picture. They're all themes that maybe have a little nostalgia for simple, fun times. Well, that's why I think I always come and look at your designs uh, twice a year uh, when you're at the affair in the garden. Um, If people want to see more of your designs, in other words, you did a nice job of explaining the one that's on the home page, what is your website address? It's S-G-N Batiks. S is in Sandra, G is in Grassi, N is in Nelipovich, Batiks.com. Okay. Your boutique designs are intricate. The mm-hmm. process is time-consuming. A major piece could take three to four weeks to complete. Right. Briefly explain the process that you use to create one original boutique artwork. Okay. Well, the first thing I do is I draw my picture on a piece of white silk with a pencil. Then I paint melted beeswax and some paraffin, which is like candle wax, on the areas I'd like to leave white, which is the color of the silk. So then I have this piece with this wax on it. I dip the piece with the wax on it in a light-colored dye, for example, a light pink. So the whole piece turns pink, but where the wax is, it stays white. Then I let that dry, paint the wax over the light pink, and maybe dip it in another color, say perhaps a darker pink. And I keep repeating this process, going from the light to the dark colors, alternately waxing and dyeing, until the last color is achieved and the piece is all crusty with wax. Then I iron the wax off. The piece is set in an acid bath. I glue it to acid-free board, and then I mount it and or frame it. And um, as far as the, you can dip parts of the piece, you can iron parts off. So it's it's um it's pretty complicated. There are a lot of dye baths. I do maybe 
35 to 40 dye beds for each piece, you know, the big ones especially. It's amazing. I don't know how you have the patience for it, Sandy. <laughs> I'm pretty regimented. It's unbelievable. Um, tell us, how do you feel about the solitude required to create? Because obviously there's a lot of solitude here. If you have to do all this dipping to get all these colors, it's um, unbelievable. It's true. I I do um, I do the work in my garage, which which isn't very glamorous, and I do all the dye baths outside because it's messy, and I try to keep the garage door open. And sometimes I see neighbors going by, so I can you know wave to them or whatever. But it is a solitary occupation, you know, because I'm creating the art by myself. So what I do is I try to keep in touch with people at, at art shows, and I do have a social life, you know, and 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 also I. Try to do volunteer work because I believe in giving back to the community. In fact, I, I volunteer with the Assistance League of Anaheim. I, I've been their in-house artist for about 15 years. And I'm also involved with the Guilds of the Performing Arts Center where I've been a, a chairman of one of the chapters for three years. And those are both wonderful organizations. So basically, you consciously work to, or I should say figure out, how to balance the solitude with social activities. Right. But, you know, when you're working for yourself, you need to balance both things, the professional and the personal. And if you spend too much time with the personal, the business doesn't progress. And if you spend it mostly on the business, then the personal life suffered. So it's difficult at times when I'm, like, getting ready to do an art show where there are deadlines for a project and I need to devote extra time to the art you know, because ideally I spend quality time with my husband, John, and with friends and the volunteer work, but it's not always easy. But obviously you've done a good job. You have the same husband for how many years, Sandy? <laughs> Thirty-five. Right. You must be doing something right. And I've met John, and he's lovely, and you look very happy together. So, And he's very supportive. That's the main thing. If You know, if I had a husband who was fighting me the whole way, I, I don't know where we'd be today. I'm curious about your home. Do you mm-hmm. have many of the pieces, your own pieces of artwork hanging? I have some, but I have a lot of pieces of fellow artists, you know, my, my peers, uh, that we've traded over the years, and I really treasure those because um, they'll ask me, well, how about trading? And, and I do, and, and I can look around and see them, and it's, it's nice. So I, I have those too. What advice do you have? For those who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs and for those who are struggling as entrepreneurs? Well, in order to be an entrepreneur, you need, as you said, you need to be a bit of a risk taker. And you also have to plan ahead for the future because <laughs> it's up and down. You know, I've been doing my boutiques uh, for about 31 years. And I've had ups and downs in the business, you know, especially when the market and the times have been hard. But I've learned to be resilient, and I just ride out the challenges and rethink things at times. For example, sometimes I'll drop shows that aren't working, or I rethink new themes for my art, or try new venues, you know. So that's what, you know, what I do. And and I know that my art friends who are still around after years of working seem to have that same attitude. But others who want, you know, instant success or they give up too easily, leave after a short time, and, you know, maybe it just isn't the right fit for them. But also, too, don't you think 
in your situation and the friends of yours who do what you do, that basically it's the passion, which is your career fuel, that propels you to persevere? I do. I do. Because um, if, if someone's in it for the money or someone's in it for other reasons, I think they burn out. And um, I really love doing what I do. Uh, it's as I said, it's not um, it's it, it's up and down, but because that just goes with the market. But I I just like it. I I miss teaching sometimes because I miss the children, but we make our choices, and this is the choice I've made. Now, in terms of like in this marketplace now, have you changed your strategies at all in terms of selling? Uh, not so far. You know, it's funny because, um, I, you know, I've been talking with artists over the year, and a lot of them have been wailing about, you know, how the market's really dropped and they're doing so badly. And I've had some bad shows, but then I've had some good ones. And, I, you know, it's kind of up and down. So I, I've just been keeping the things at the prices that I think are fair because my boutiques are, are pretty fair prices. Right. I've been told that for for years <laughs> that I'm too cheap, but I just feel like they're fair for what they are, and uh, and I I just try to be consistent. And, well, I guess uh, I wasn't thinking in terms of the pricing. I was thinking in terms of strategies as far as um, looking for new places to display. Uh, marketing yourself in a different way. I mean, you recently put up a, a new website. That's the kind of thing. I'm talking about thinking divergently, you know, well, not doing the same things over and over again. Well, one new thing um, that happened kind of by accident, uh, when I was doing note cards for the Assistance League of Anaheim, the theme for the fashion show that we had was Italia. And so I gave them four designs of Italian scenes of note cards, and they printed them up and they're selling them. And while I was at it, I thought, well, this is a good way for me to sell note cards too. So I printed up a bunch for myself, and I've started selling them at the shows. I started in Chicago, and lo and behold, they're selling. So that's a new venue for me because I've never done prints, let alone note cards. Well, and that gives you so you have now a new product. Right. And so I get the sense you said, ah, if it worked here, why shouldn't it work for me too? Exactly. Well, that means you're alert and alive. You're not just, <laughs> well, it's very important. A lot of people keep doing the same things and they miss opportunity over and over and over again. That's true. And I think it's terrific that you said, aha, let me try it, and now it's successful. Well, I'm going to look forward to seeing that at the October uh, Affair in the Garden in Beverly Hills. And I will be looking forward to seeing you. Great. Well, thank you for joining me today, Sandy. You are a win-without-competing woman. Thank Please you, Arlene. come back soon. Thank you. You are a win without you you are also a winner. Thank you. If you are hungry for other career stories about artists I have interviewed who use my right fit method, please visit 
drbarrow.com. That's drbarrow.com. And click on the date of the show you want to hear. Glass artist Brian Sutherland, June 10th. Jewelry designer Maria Dabrowski, June 17th. Whimsical sculptress Daniela Camay, June 24th. Upcoming shows. Please join me next Wednesday, July 8th at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I will interview best-selling author Sherilyn Kenyon, the reigning queen of the vampire novel, according to Publishers Weekly. Her new Dark Hunter book, Bad Moon Rising, will go on sale August 4, 2009. On July 15th, I will interview award-winning investigative journalist Stephen Freed, who is the author of four acclaimed books, The New Rabbi, Bitter Pills Inside the World of Legal Drugs, Thing of Beauty, The Tragedy of Supermodel Gia, and Husbandry. On July 22nd, Gunnar Johnson, creator of Throne Is, used in the film Batman Forever. On July 29th, Steve Jordan, fitness guru who overcame paralysis and memory loss. I would love to hear from you. Please email me, drbarro at winwithoutcompeting.com. That's Dr. Barrow at winwithoutcompeting.com. Or call 310 441 5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarro.com. That's drbarrow.com. And for search services, barrowglobal.com, B-A-R-R-O-G-L-O-B-A-L.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, Founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc.